Hello, hello, hello. This is episode eight of the Artproof Podcast. Hope you're all well and staying safe and sane and managing to keep busy in these turbulent times. In this episode, we speak with artist Christopher Steed. We've been following Chris's work for some time and he was part of an exhibition Nick and I curated last year called Sugar Mountain. Chris has an unbelievable work ethic and doesn't seem to slow down for anything. His monolithic tapestries take a huge amount of time, care and space to make and we wanted to find out how he was adapting to lockdown life. Chris is also studying at the Royal College of Art, which has been in the press recently due to its handling of the lockdown. The introduction of a virtual end-of-year show and the cutting short of the academic year have been a cause for concern for many of the students and has garnered support from artists such as Mark Leckie and Peter Doig. Chris has been instrumental in trying to negotiate with the college to get the best outcome for everyone and explains that it's not just a black and white situation. As always, listen to the end of the show to hear details of how to get in touch with us and we hope you enjoy it. Thanks for agreeing to chat with us, Chris. Well, you did threaten me, but uh, hello. How's things? Uh, everything's tip-top. Who knew that staying indoors would be so tiring? <laughs> it's, it feels a little bit like Christmas, like four weeks of Christmas without the depression and the bad TV and food. How's the creative process being affected? It by- hasn't, to be honest. It's But the daily routine hasn't really changed much because... Uh, when I was at school, I was getting up about 10 o'clock in the morning, uh, going to school at about 12, doing a bit of admin, pottering around. And then as people start to leave, I turn the music up and have a beer and start making paintings, <laughs> and, uh, which which is pretty much the same process at home. So the work rate remains the same. The space is a little bit different. but also What is the space at the moment? Is it a bedroom, a living room? What is that space? Uh, it's a studio flat, which... Uh, it's quite apt because it's now turned into my studio <laughs> uh, and I live by myself, which is kind of lucky because uh, yeah. it means I can stretch the work into the kitchen, backyard, which I share with a couple of pigeons, Ray and Ghost, <laughs> and then my uh, living room as well. So I can rotate around the building, you know, different times of day. So in the afternoon, I, I go out in the backyard and mm. make some work there. Then I go into the kitchen and then in, in the evening, you know, the music will get louder and, and I'll start working more and uh, we can go until like midnight, two o'clock, even three and uh, be undisturbed. Where if I was at art school, I'd, I'd be kicked out by about half 12 by a security guard. Right. So, uh, it's it's kind of OK in that sense. And, you know, as Gerhard Richter once said, painting is an assertion that does not tolerate company. And to be locked up by yourself is isn't that bad as a painter because you can mm. actually just get on with it. But let's be honest, it doesn't really work out like that. My screen time in the first week of quarantine was 8.5 hours, which I think a lot of people's were because we're checking the news, we're checking in with mm. friends, loved ones, yeah. we're on Instagram, we're checking the news. It's you know We're doing anything but painting. So there was a slow adaptation process but, you know, that's over now and the honeymoon's over. Now it's kind of back to work, to be honest. Did you have all the materials already or have you had to do an online order? How uh, well, set up at home for that side of things? I kind of got wind of the lockdown before it was in the press because I, I have a friend whose father works for the home office. Okay. And then he's contact me, contacted me as well and said, look, I think we're going to go into lockdown. Mm. And uh, I shared this with some of my student friends and, you know, People were kind of looking at me like I was mad, like, are we really going to go into lockdown? So I started emptying the studio early, and I, I started filling up Ubers with all the material from previous endeavours. Right. And I brought some of the metal cages from the studios, all the tagly telly that I make, and I yeah. just filled up my flat and uh, went out racking, getting all the food I can get, uh, and just really got my flat ready for what we have yeah. now, lockdown. Right. I mean, you had two studios, didn't you? You got you got a private studio and your school studio. So yeah, exactly. it was just a mad rush to gather as much stuff as you could and hunker down. Well, the thing is, I the studio in East London becomes a bit of a storage unit because mm. part of the work is large, and then the school studio obviously is where everything's happening in real time, and that's quite close to me. But still, it just meant evacuating, getting everything here. I'm getting, you know, locked down and I've brought enough for a month or two. Yeah, and I think we're okay for a while. So I suppose the reason we wanted to speak to you, I mean, we've 
obviously worked together in the past and we followed what you do for for quite some time but also the most sort of timely um, reason that we wanted to speak to you is because you're studying at the RCA and there's been a lot of stuff in the press about how the Royal College of Art in particular has handled the lockdown so can you give us a bit of an insight into how um, so what happened with the lockdown how did it all how did they deal with it at the time well we have to go further back from the lockdown and we have to go to the UCU strike which happened uh, early February and mm. so there was some disputes happening between the the tutors and the Royal College itself yeah. over the casualization of the contract. Yeah. I mean, this was all art schools in London, wasn't it? Yeah. I think, yeah. Well, I think, you know, they was putting them on zero hour contracts mm. and uh, they lost their sick pay, maternity pay. Uh, there was gender pay gaps, inequality, and they lost the safety of their jobs. And we decided as students that we just had to support them with this because mm. we're all the same. They're practicing artists. We're practicing artists. Yeah. These are the people we look up to and yeah. the people who we pay a lot of money for their opinion. And if their job safety becomes threatened, then yeah. it becomes, makes the entire situation unstable. So those picket lines, which meant we couldn't cross the lines as solidarity, which meant already we, as students, had adapted to working in conditions where we couldn't get to the studio. So already we was thinking of ways of making it work whilst respecting the tutors for their strike. So it already our our daily life at the uni had become disrupted. And what a year to start. <laughs> um, well, I mean, yes and no. I mean, last year we had Brexit and that seemed like a situation now everybody's forgotten about that and it's just you know we just roll from one year to the next and you know new problems but uh, at the same time you know you have to respond to these problems and you know it could be a unique time in arts history to really start making work so yeah. you know, it's it, it is tricky and it's, it's unfortunate that we've lost uh, studios over this period of time I mean we've gone from you know, from mid-February to now without full access. Yeah. And, you know, now we're not there whatsoever. What was your, because you've been quite, as a student, you've been quite vocal about it. And I know that you sort of followed the channels to get sort of press involved and stuff like that with the way that it was handled. But what was your, what was your sort of initial reaction to the whole thing? Well, I mean, I've missed out a big chunk of this as well. So look, we had the strike and then what happened was uh, we realised that the COVID-19 situation was actually a real life problem at the RCA because we have a huge international community, uh, students uh, coming from very far. And mm. this, you know, this problem had started and was in the problem, sorry, was in the press already. And uh, we looked at it from a long distance and was like, Fuck, look what's going on over there it's it looks crazy and then we saw what happened in Italy mm. and uh, I couldn't believe you know watching uh, the TV and watching people queuing up to buy food with lines in the supermarkets and I thought this could never happen in London uh, it, you can lock down a city like London because we don't have such draconian uh, governments or responses uh, but of course we did and we are and uh, we, you know we're living this in real time now so we watched it creep up on us, but as it crept up on us, uh, lots of our, you know, the students were very concerned about the way the school were handled, uh, the safety of the students, because uh, they told the tutors they shouldn't come to the school because uh, obviously it's not safe for them because they're, you know, they're frontline key workers. Mm. So the teachers were told to work from home, but the students were told it was safe to come in, which we didn't think was fair because, I, you know, nobody yeah. should come in. So you would just be there purely to use the studio space rather than having lectures or workshops or anything like that? They shut down the library, they shut down the facilities uh, and they said you can come in, we're responding to the government's guidelines, it's safe for you to come to school. But if you looked at main Europe, everywhere mm. was shutting down and a few days before the RCA closed down, uh, 32 out of 34 countries in Europe, Britain and Sweden, etc., hadn't closed down 
Uh, yeah. so it had closed down and only Sweden and Britain hadn't closed their schools. Mm. Uh, and this slow response in, you know, with a herd immunity uh, concept thrown in and, you know, we, we just said to the school, we need to close the school uh, because we don't feel right. safe. Uh, you know, obviously nobody knew what was going on. And, and I'm guessing there was no kind of, there's nothing in place for something like this. I suppose it's such a unique situation. Well, it was kind of scary because you, you went to school and people were wearing masks and this was, you know, as it was starting. Mm. And, uh, you know, now it's a normal part of life for everybody to wear masks. But to see it happening and just see school turn so fast. Uh, so, you know, we was asking schools to close down, but they refused. And on the day before the school actually did close down, myself and another student who shall remain nameless, uh, we we decided we was going to climb on the roof and uh, have a protest, a bit like Strange Ways Prison. Mm. And, uh, you know, we just wanted to get some social media publicity to say, let's close the school because uh, it's not safe for us to be yeah. there. And at uh, this point, what was the art? What, what, what had they told you? What was their stance at this point? We are just responding to the guidelines of the government and we are we have a daily meeting with the gov- uh, so we have a daily meeting, we have a COVID response unit and we speak to the government on a daily basis. And at the moment, the school remains open. So uh, how much before at that time, how much before were the teachers sent home before the full lockdown? How the that- timeline was so quick, it's it's very hard for me to pinpoint because and- it happened department by department. One day I, I Put it this way, on the week we closed down, I went to the library and got all the books I needed for my dissertation. Right. And then the next day, the library closed down without any notice. Oh, it's, right, okay. it's weird that they did it in such these steps, right? Rather than it's either, you know, all one way or, you know, this little section of people get to be safe and this little section. I mean, it's about okay. right? like how did they make these little closures rather than just closing it all? Like it's a weird way of going about it, right? Did you think well, that? It's bad business, I suppose, for them. And the reason the school did close down was eventually two students were identified to have COVID, which which was uh, obviously it was going to happen because there's two and a half thousand students, yeah. and uh, and it was unfortunate because it was on the week leading up to Mother's Day. And they didn't say which campus it was in. And, you know, if you've got an elderly mother who's vulnerable and you've been at school and you just found out that your school had outbreaks, you're not going to go see your mother uh, that weekend because it just wouldn't yeah. go right. So yeah. it, it was, you know, the emotions were running high uh, and they cl- uh, closed the school with two hours notice. And as me and my friend were getting ready to get on the roof, you know, with our masks, our gloves, and our banners, <laughs> We got wind that the school was actually going to close uh, and we decided against it. And if anybody's listening from the school, you know, <laughs> probably do the same. No, but, you know, we, we did this for the you know safety of the students. You know, mm, yeah, of course. We were getting fucking nervous. Yeah. And then it did, you know, inevitably it, it locked down as everything else did in the country. But then the sort of big issue occurred when you were told that that would kind of be the end of the academic year. Is that right? Okay, so this is where uh, the students start getting heated. They announced, uh, sorry, they didn't announce. They sent out an email saying, we will be uh, updating the frequently asked questions in response to uh, all of your questions about COVID. But they didn't announce it. They just put it online, but didn't say, have a look. Mm. And the reason why was... uh, they announced uh, that everything was going to go online, uh, but it didn't inform us. They just put it online yeah. and didn't, didn't say, okay, everything you've been asking is there to see. And once uh, people found out, people were furious because yeah. from a first year's point of view, they gave you uh, three options. Uh, one option was to consider your first year over and yeah. you proceed straight to the second year. And right. you... And you, you know, you don't have to do any more work, although you're paying for the, you're paying, still paying for this time. Yeah. You can can proceed straight to go, you know, like in Monopoly. Yeah, yeah. And off you go. And, uh, 
we're, we're talking about a loss of facilities from February the 20th. And then they're saying to you, come back in September. Congratulations. Yeah. Uh, the other alternative was to accept uh, online teaching, okay. which wouldn't be assessed, but you would, you know, but we, they said we warmly welcome you to, to accept this option. You can have um, YouTube tutorials in exchange for all your thousands. Yeah, and, and the other option was uh, you defer, but this is when they got a bit passive aggressive. They mm. said, uh, you can defer, but we can't promise you the same experience when you return that you had before. So what does that mean? You can't. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Oh, same experience. Meaning. It sounds like an abusive relationship. It's like. <laughs> <laughs> Don't come back because it won't be the same. It just it yeah. just what, bad. what would differ if you def say if you deferred for a year and then came back? What were they suggesting would be oh. different? Well, one of the things they did say was uh, we 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 won't promise you a physical degree show when you return. So it's you know making people think twice about going. And obviously it's a is a it is a disaster if people defer on a mass amount because they've already invited next year's student year so i mean in painting they've offered out 61 places already if you have 61 people accepting places and then you get 30 people deferring you now have overcrowding uh, which becomes a problem for the teachers because their work rate uh, has increased the students have even less space yeah. it's just a disaster and it's space already an issue i know from studying at lcc recently compared to studying at University of the Arts 15 years ago, space is now a big issue. And a well, lot of students don't have studio space. And I mean, I think it's the same all over Britain. But mm. I know they was meant to take 60 students in painting and then 40, then 60. Then they increased it to 60, 60. Now, if you get deferrals, I don't know how that works. But also another thing to consider is, a uh, recent report that I read is that only 39% of Asian students are likely to take their places this year in light of the pandemic. So what, what the universities and the RCA was included in this list are suggesting they may do is take less British students this year to increase the amount of Asian students they have. Right. And uh, I suppose international students is where they make a bulk of their money, right? So they're paying more. They, well, I mean, I pay £9,500 a year. Uh, international student pays £28,000 a year. Mm. And I think the, the home, I mean, we did a poll with the students uh, and only 50% of the students responded. But in the poll, 24% of the students were from here in England. So we're talking a quarter of the students are paying £9,500. Yeah. So uh, you don't need to be an accountant to know... Uh, where you want your money to be coming from yeah and, and it's tricky uh, this situation because you know it really becomes big business and there's a you know there's a long-term plan but the school is in a big transition at the moment they have a lot of work to pay for obviously for Battersea uh, campus they took down the sculpture building and they're rebuilding that that costs a lot of money and they need to find the money for this and also that means an overcrowding on the bottleneck in Kensington and quote unquote uh, one of the hierarchies quoted it saying you know it's a bit like overbooking a hotel there's going to be problems and there will be a bottleneck but we're just going to have to deal with it not my words but I've sat in some meetings where these quotes have been flying about with members of the union yeah and, uh, and then they're going to do the same to Kensington they're going to rip apart Kensington and bottleneck Battersea uh, and I understand this because it's for the best of the school. But if you look at the Royal Academy, when they were doing their transition, they yeah. reduced the number of students. Now, I know it's very hard to compare it because the Royal Academy is a very small class and it's run on a different money. But it's, yeah, it's a tricky time because uh, our college school yeah. university is business. Mm. And it, it, it's very tricky to be here as a small student and uh, try and oppose to the growth of the university with a non-economic brain.
you managed to get a lot of press attention and stuff like that and you got artists involved so you got letters written by Mark Leckie, Peter Doy, I know Sandra Rhodes has been quite vocal about the idea of having an online show so what sort of developments were made from that attention? It's really hard to know because first of all I, I was thinking what can we do as students to gather momentum on this and you know to have a voice that is heard and you know we're just the little people in this argument and it's very easy to ignore us because guess what in a year's time we're gone and mm. the, sorry, and the teachers themselves when they had their strike situation I spoke to one member of, you know one member of staff and he said it's all very well having the strike but there's a 15-year plan in this school and we're all on zero sorry a lot of people on zero hour contracts and if you're vocal about this you're going to lose your job. You're breaching contracts. Yeah. And we can be replaced because Royal College of Art is the number one art and design university in the last five or six years. And if you get rid of staff, they will be replaced. In, in yeah. a and the students are replaced every year anyway. So mm -hmm. it's a revolving door of money. And if you was in charge on £303,000 a year, you don't really have to listen to these small people if you choose not to. And when did the switch to zero hours contracts happen? Yeah, I was not aware of that at all. It, it's not for all. I mean, you have your, there's two tiers of staff and there's your, there's your full-timers, your part-timers who are on the contract, but your visiting lecturers who were before on contracts are no longer. And uh, yeah, they're just, they're being squeezed out. I mean, they need job security because, you know, a lot of these tutors are in their 40s, have families and are artists. And, you know, an artist never knows when his next show really is or if it's going to sell. Uh, you know, are they dipping in and out popularity? You know, what, what is their, where's their money coming from? So the art school obviously was always going to be their, their bread and butter for the family. And, you know, it's tricky, you know, if you're going to get your mortgage and you're on a zero-hour contract, the ramifications are much deeper for them. So it's, it's really really fragile situation for them I think. Mm. Well, and how did you reach out to those more established artists then for their opinion or, or backing? How uh, Peter Doig used to teach there didn't he? Well that, that's the first person that I reached out to because I, I know Peter through his daughters so I, I thought look I, I, I speak to him first of all because I know he used to teach there and obviously he's a he's an artist of universal respect He's been in the art world and doesn't play for celebrity. You know, he's sure. a painter that's about painting. And I thought that let, let's just ask him for some help. And I'd, I messaged him and said, look, here's the situation. And he came back and, you know, his first response was, you know, he, he didn't really think, you know, they'd hold their ground on this because it, it seemed unthinkable to have a online show because mm. not his words, but from a student's point of view, the degree show is the wedding you know, yeah. you know, you have a love affair. You, you're trying to get into the art school of your dreams. Yeah. You get turned down. You get, your, you have your interviews, and you have your two years. You, you give your 100%. You sacrifice your time, your relationships, your money, your sanity. You, know, you give everything into this, and then it's all because you're leading towards this degree show, which then, you know, it's your springboard into the yeah. art world. When, when that's taken away from you, for weddings being, you know, cancelled, you know, it's like, does anybody oppose this? And somebody stands up and goes, no degree show. And, you know, it's over. And so these second years, I'm a first year, these second years who are just about to make their degree show work, because, you know, nobody's made their degree show work in February. Because no. is always going to be the more resolved one, because you've, you've entered this two-year degree, you've unpacked all of your old ideas you completely broken everything down and you're reassembling it and you're like okay let's now think about the show and as you're about to do it the strike happens now you can't do anything about the strike because you support mm. the strike but then this happens but the problem is you know this this is bigger than the rca you know this is affecting everybody yeah. you know mothers their fathers their family everybody's worried about so many things that you can't actually make the work for the online show because you're concerned about your loved ones and you don't have a studio to make it in and you adapt to time most people I speak to who are at home actually aren't making work because even though you're at home and you've got more hours and thank god sense you you just nobody's in the right frame of mind to make the work yeah motivation and inspiration yeah it's everybody's in a strange place it's really hard and not everybody you know has the space to make work and 
I, I don't use oil paint. So if I did use oil paint and I was at home and, you know, I've got turpentine in my bedroom, it's, it's not going to really work. And even the work I make, I shouldn't be making indoors because it's so dusty. Well, now yeah. I have to wear a mask to make this work. And I can't even buy a mask at the moment because everybody's wearing a mask. So I'm having to use these bandanas and old bits of rags. And it's, it's really tricky with them. Not everybody had the, had the foresight or the notice or the ability to change, you know, to take all the materials from the studio. Some people just didn't believe we'd go into lockdown of a shock. And they didn't have enough notice to empty the studios, even though, you know, it was leaning towards that. You know, lots of these students were younger and they just didn't have the foresight to actually, this is going to happen, I need to readjust my situation because they haven't actually had much experience outside of the art school. And so they're not going to have that response because mm. they're not expected to because, you know, they're just they're younger and just not going to have this uh, this foresight to it. So it, it, you know, caught some people off guard. You know, they just yeah. wasn't ready for it. And uh, so obviously they're not going to be ready. But second years, of course, they can't do their online degree show because they've just left all, everything at home. So, I mean, home being the, um, the ideal outcome then. I mean, obviously, the RCA has never experienced anything like this. Well, don't, don't they have uh, like a summer program where they, people come in for the summer period? Like not, not the usual students, but people come and do short courses. Right. Well, Is yeah. there not a way that they can accommodate like a bridge into some of that well this this was part of the issue so what happened was in the midst of our negotiations sorry i say negotiations it wasn't a conversation in the midst of uh, the communication between the student action group and the school they announced a summer school online and the students were furious i mean i'm i mean really furious like sickened because they said how could you take in these new courses when we haven't completed our course and we've paid for the time but not getting the time but you're going to take the money for new students to do short courses and uh, Paul Thompson the vice chancellor was a bit uh, shocked about this and said I wasn't aware of this and we won't be doing the summer school because obviously the situation doesn't allow it. and also what you have to remember is when this pandemic started nobody really knew how furious it would rip through the country and uh, right now I think you know What's the date today? April the 13th. So the spike has begun to level out, but we really don't know how that's going to work out. And also when we do get permission to go back to our situations, we live in London and there's already talk that even though we will be allowed to enter society again, that the spike will go up at some point and we could have local shutdowns. And of course, mm. London would be a London, uh, local shutdown. So it's it's a tricky situation. And as, as somebody that's been part of the vulnerable list, I, I've been told to stay indoors for 12 weeks. And if I'm then told I can go back out, I'm in no rush mm. uh, to go out there too quick because, I, I'm gonna, you know, the thought of uh, ended up in Excel uh, Centre hospital is scary shit. You know, it really is. And uh, and more importantly, it's like I haven't seen my mother since Christmas and she's just finished chemotherapy. Right. And I want to go see her. And uh, tomorrow's the last day of radiotherapy. And traditionally, when you go to hospital and you finish your cancer treatment, you ring a bell and that signals the end of your treatment. And I yeah. can't even go to see her to celebrate this because uh, she's been advised that her quarantine might be extended to nine months because if you've recovered from cancer, the body would not uh, be able to facilitate uh, the comeback from COVID because the organs have already done so much to fight the cancer mm. that this could be a finishing wave. So I can't even see her. So it, I, I don't think I, I could risk catching it. Although very, you know, part of me wishes that I, I had had it already and I'd recovered healthily and I... And I wouldn't be a risk to her, but the reality is I don't know if I have or not because uh, the government haven't given access to the public for the tests that we should need, as they got in Germany uh, or other countries uh, like Korea, where they the way they battled COVID was by having mass testing. And that's not something that's actually been implemented in this country. So I don't know if I've had it or not because I, I, had a, I did have a fever and was vomiting. Uh, for a few days at school and I had some of the symptoms but you don't need to have the symptoms to catch it yeah. so I've got no idea if I've had it or not and my neighbour upstairs had it and for two weeks I was going out to get his food so we've had it in the house but I don't know if I've really had it so I don't know if I've I I I I I I I I I I I 
obviously a lot of people are experiencing lots of hardship on, on different levels. I mean, what do you think of this idea? I know Ryan Gander was quoted to say on the subject of the, the, the online degree show, saying that there is all sorts of hardship going on. And does it really matter if a few art students have to have an online show? Is it that big a deal? Well, when I saw that, my, my initial response was, that's quite un, an unhelpful quote. But I also realised that it was in the press. He may have said a lot of things to uh, a reporter who was David Bassett from The Guardian. Mm. The way that came about was Tim Stone had got in contact with me and he said, look, I've got a contact for The Guardian who wants to write about the Royal College situation. So I got in contact with David Bassett and he said to me, uh, I want to speak to some second years. So I passed him over to the second years and, and the article came out. And when I read Ryan's uh, comment, I, I just... I thought, well, I imagine he may have been taken out of context. Yeah. I contacted him and I said, look, as a artist, student who's just been made unemployed, who is in receipt of disability benefits mm. and has been placed on a 12-week quarantine list and has to find £3,000 in a month's time to pay for a university that I can't go to, I, I I would expect a certain level level of empathy more than what you implied in the Guardian, and you know just asked if you had anything to say about that, and he just said, "Look, I'm sorry, you're one of millions in the same situation. If there's anything I can do to help remotely, I will." And I said, "Well, do you know what? If you could sign our petition, that would mean something." Yeah. He said, I don't agree with all aspects of the petition, and so I, I explained a little bit more about the situation. And he said, look, I'll, I will sign for petition. You know, that's the, that's the trick with right, the So he signed. He said he, he, said he was going to sign. Yeah. Uh, so he, you, once you'd explained the situation in more detail, he was more understanding or more empathetic to, well, to the situation. What he said wasn't wrong. Mm. Uh, of course, there are more hardships. And we have to be careful as students because art school is a privilege. And it doesn't really, mm. as a vocation, it doesn't really offer an essential service to society no. it's a luxury in society and for us to start complaining about our degree show in a disaster can seem we have to be careful that we don't look like brats so i you know i i, I got that and which is why i i just reached out to him and, and said you know i, I just uh, urge you to reconsider that that are actually hardships within the uh, student community because, you know, one girl uh, that I spoke to in my year, you know, her parents had to remortgage the house for her to go to this school. And, you know, I, I thought when I went to the Royal College, you know, having my previous art school experience, I thought, you know, I'd be at school and there'd be a lot of rich kids. No, there was like lots of people just like me yeah. who were having to work jobs, having to do the zero hour contracts on minimum wage just to sustain their experience at art school who don't have money and did come from nothing and you know is there any talk from the art school about refunding it's a discussion that is happening but what it is they need reimbursement from the government uh, the rca operates as a charity what yeah. if its profits have to be uh, directed back into the business and they operate even though they operate on a profit it all has to be rechanneled and the school is uh, rebuilding and of course you know, to us at first, we was like, of course they got money. But like any business, you're always walking the tightrope between yeah. profit and growth. Yeah. And they, of course, they don't have spare cash sitting around. Maybe do they you, do. Do you feel that they're kind of doing the best they can? No, nobody does. Because what it is, uh, we had a QC look over the contract mm. of the school with the student and the student with the school. And we had Nicholas Padfield who is the father of Samuel Padfield, who we've yeah. all worked with. And he looked over this from a legal point of view, and he found some breaks in the contract where they're meant to enter negotiations with the students if they have any major changes in the, in the degree that they offer. And even though they had clauses which included earthquakes and pandemics, they're still meant to enter negotiations over the change. And because they hadn't done this, we got legal advice. What has happened with this? We've entered a situation where we've given a legal letter to all the heads of departments. And this is to be given to the, the chair of boards. They, what all we really want 
I want to say we, uh, this is the, the action group. I'm not a part of the action group, by the way. I want to say we, I'm talking about we, the students. Yeah. I, you know, I, I'm just I'm just a student shouting in the background. There's actual people <laughs> working on this uh, all day, all night. And what all they want is uh, goodwill talks because they are actually meant to have a voice and be yeah. listened to. And it, it is meant to be a negotiation and a conversation. Art school is meant to be an ongoing conversation anyway. So that's all they want. They want to enter this conversation and say, look. Has the college um, acknowledged the fact that they didn't have that open conversation? And you know, have, have they recognised that and explained why they didn't, why they bypassed that whole situation, especially as it is in the contract that they put forward? Well, you have to remember, these people are, uh, my friends who were in the meeting said it, it's very tricky because these are businessmen. And uh, when you enter a business and you're not a businessman, they don't give away much. Right. Yeah, yeah. They don't have to. And they've already made their decision and, uh, and they're rolling with it. Okay. This must feel horrible, right? It must feel like it's no longer art school. It's this weird, slippery... Yes and no. I mean, I think what's happened, though, since this hap- uh, since this started is the reality of, of society changing has kicked in. It's much bigger. I mean, economically, we have to look at the country. And uh, as, as a society in, in Europe, we've had probably the most fertile, blossoming era of, uh, of peace and growth, you know, since World War II. We, it's just been the good times, really, hasn't it? Let's face it. Mm. Uh, we haven't really had hardship in Europe in our lifetime, but our grandparents had hardship. They lived through the wars. You know, we've had a pretty cotton wool era where, you know, everything's been okay for us. Yeah. You know, we haven't, like, we haven't lived through hardship. Even mm. though some of us may have lived through poverty, we haven't really had hardship. And then no. this pandemic, what it's done, it's... I, okay, it's interesting because... In the press, they have said, it, while it may seem like it's levelled out uh, the rich and the poor, actually it's brought up, brought about more inequality because not everybody has access to the services. Also, like if you look at society down to you know for lower levels, if you look at your heroin addicts on the streets streets right now who were previously begging, they can't get any money anymore through begging, and you know you've got all of these people who are addicts who are out on the street who need to buy heroin, who the price has gone up on heroin, they can't buy it. And you talk about how they can live and crime in that level. I mean, last night I woke up with a burglar in my backyard and eight policemen. Which is like a drug haven. And uh, I was going to sleep. I heard a noise and I have foxes. You know, I live in Zone 1 London and we've got foxes going through the rubbish. It's dinner time as you go to sleep. And I hear this rustle in my tarpaulin where I hide my paintings. And then I heard another rustle, and I didn't lock my windows as usual. And I thought, you know, I really don't want to go up and change, uh, so lock my windows because I, I stayed up late the night before listening to RZA versus DJ Premier, and I had a skin for, and I thought, fuck it, I'm not going out there. And then the next, I looked out my window, and I saw eight policemen with torches and infrared cameras on their chest, and a burglar being arrested. This is going to become on the increase because. These addicts have no other way of getting money. Mm. But, uh, I mean, this this idea of it being the great leveller seems like complete bullshit, and it only seems to be wealthy people that say it. And you know, there's been lots in the press about black and ethnic minority communities being more greatly affected by this, by you know things like not having as much outdoor space. So this idea that COVID-19 is this thing that is affecting everyone in the same way is complete bullshit, where it just seems to be another thing that goes further to widen gaps in society. I mean, it's strange because I work as well as study and I'm on a zero hour contract. And when this happened, the government announced they was going to give 80 percent wages to the full time employed. Mm. And if you were self-employed, you would get your tax break. But as a zero-hour contract, I was offered nothing. And because I'm a student, it means I can't claim universal credit, which means my income completely freezes. So what do you do? People don't have the same access to things like space and money and even healthcare in some cases. So this idea of 
people saying it's the great leveler, you know, Madonna sitting in a bath of roses telling oh. everyone COVID-19 is the great leveler. It smacks of just kind of privilege. Yeah, it's because uh, some people can afford to order their food in and not go out and have uh, deliveries. And I have to go out and get my stuff. It's it's just reality. Uh, even though I'm meant to be indoors and not going outside, I called my doctor and said, listen, uh, you put me in for 12-week quarantine, but I, I, I need to go get my food. And mm. he said, you, you can go get your food and be careful. And obviously... I'm being careful. I'm going to the shop with rubber gloves and, and a bandana looking like I'm about to be yeah. in the train as a graffiti artist. Then we've got the hazmat suit out. No, but, uh, and what does strike me when I go out is it just seems like normal. And I wonder yeah. whether people are taking the lockdown serious because I'm not one to follow rules, but I'm, I'm wondering, am I missing something here? It's, I, I don't think I am because obviously we are yeah. in lockdown. And, you know, I've got friends who are nurses yeah. who are like begging begging everybody uh like, please don't go out because we're on 50 percent right now lockdown and we need to be on 70 or 80 to really get it down you know when you're in the ward and you ha- you're looking at one patient and another and you have to make a decision about who goes on the ventilator i mean do you think this is down to the ambiguity of the the messages being sent by the government absolutely this whole like uh, being allowed out to exercise is ridiculous because i think people can flaunt the rules if you really want to exercise i mean i know in jail you get to go to an exercise yard but this is about society and people dying you know in jail anyway if you're not allowed out in the yard uh, you do exercise in your, in your prison cell and uh, we are indeed in some form prison. And I just think when you say to society, you can go out for one hour a day to exercise, I think people will break that rule. When I go to the shop, it doesn't feel like it's an hour of exercise when I see people walk down the street. But who am I to know? Because I'm not actually yeah. out there. So I only get to see it for like 20 minutes and I wonder what actually is going on. Maybe it's just because I'm becoming old and paranoid and I'm just like the guy walking about going, why, why are all these people out here? Yeah, should, you should be indoors. I remember actually before the lockdown happened, I went to buy some canvas from Russell and Chapel, and there's this man leaning out this window shouting at people, going, "What are you doing? You're all going to die! You're going to die!" So that, that that cry from the man out the window doesn't seem so ludicrous anymore. I mean, it did yeah. feel like something from uh, the plague. He was really yeah, yeah the, the guy in the corner. And I think everyone, you know, everyone does have to follow the rules and we do have to practice social distancing. But I mean, stuff like when they were closing Brockwell Park, for some people, this is their only access to green outdoor space. And to take that away seemed ridiculous and quite dangerous because then you will have people just walking around the streets, which are much, you know, it's much more difficult to avoid people when you're walking around the street. So people need to have access to these spaces. So I think, you know, I went out for a walk today. I was out for about an hour and a half. So you can't, you've, it's got to be a bit more nuanced than just saying, right, you can go out for an hour. Is it an hour? I, is it, I don't think there's a time frame. Well, I, think there, I think it is a suggestion of an hour, yeah. I think, in fact, up north, they're quite stringent on it, aren't they? They go, they actually do, the police do hand out fines and they double check number plates if they've been seen twice that day and things like that. Well, did you see there was that police force that died for for Yeah, they died the lagoon. But no. I think police forces in smaller towns have less to do and will respond harder. And the Met Police has actually been less hands-on about this. Good or bad, I don't know, but that is the reality of it. Mm. So what's been your your sort of routine in terms of being creative? Wake up, turn on NTS radio, potter around, wish already that I started already I, it's like a constant race against the clock because I'm meant to be writing a dissertation right now but the reality is I feel like painting and when I say painting I, I mean just making work that involves paint but I'm not actually painting here really because much of my work is painted months ago and then I just reconfigure it and it's a composite of older materials put together but at the moment I feel like making work and I don't usually get commissions but I did put something out on social media and said, look, the government's not giving us any money. I will sell some prints a little bit cheaper. And I was quite surprised in the response where I sold out of all the prints. And then I had friends send me money, not even for artwork, but, you know, some artists just sent me money in the PayPal. And then I got commissions in. And actually, it 
for once it felt like I was living off the artwork because uh, my day job disappeared. But then I had work to make for money because I don't make work which is usually sellable or part of a commodity system. It's quite often installation based. Therefore, you can't really sell for installation in a in the kind of market which would buy me whatever that is because it doesn't really exist i i just make work and i didn't really ever think about selling but when uh, all of a sudden it's your only income then it became a thing and i, I realized that it was harder to make work for friends than it is for a gallery because if i make it for a gallery i'm only thinking about aesthetics idea and concepts but when it's a friend i'm thinking further and I'm, I'm trying too hard. But there's, been, there's been a sort of positive spin commercially. I guess so, but it's only for honeymoon. Let's see how, how that is in two or three months. And also, then, then art becomes a job, which it's never meant to be, although you're always meant to be sustainable. It's, it's, been, a, it's been an interesting period. At the moment, it's, just, it's a daily operation of working, as, as it always was. It's just seven days a week. There's no weekend. So this whole, I don't know what day it is, is, is kind of similar, but... So uh, never not working. Yeah. Uh, no, no days off apart no from... Days off. That's, so do, you think, is, do you think there will be, you know, one of the positive things that comes out of this are pe people are just kind of locked away making work? It will produce this sort of huge amount of work? No. I mean, I, I'm lucky that I have space to make work, but that's only because of how my own personal timeline worked out. If I was in the shared house now, I haven't said that like uh, an artist is meant to respond to a situation and whatever that situation would be. So I guess it's up to the individual to really pull that practice around and make this useful for, for themselves and you know, this will be an interesting time for a lot of people because, uh, for instance, the people that are lost access to their studios at university now are not going to have a, a studio in three or four months' time and they'll have to be out in the real market and uh, have to really become sustainable that way. So this is a bit of a bit of a learning curve. Did, were you saying you, you're enjoying that, the extra difficulty of making work for friends? How, how are you finding that situation? No, I don't enjoy it, uh, really. I'd say, uh, I mean, for instance, one of my friends, he asked me to make a painting for him. So I gave him a price. I, I quoted two days' work. And day five or six, I'm just trying to make the painting. Because it's for a very close friend, I'm, I'm, I'm over-trying, in a sense, right. which restricts your looseness. Also, it's, you know, it's for him and his girlfriend. And what I would make for a gallery would be much more loose because... The artwork itself is always meant to be testing new water. Yeah. At least, you know, what I'm doing, I'm always trying to, like, break some new mould. But when you're making work for a friend, you're not trying to break a mould. You're trying to please one person. And also, lots of my work in its own environment is about occupational space, spectatorship, and the interaction between the space and the person walking around and within it. And, you know, the whole thing of having the artwork in the space and being able to walk around it and have a non-fixed position of viewing it and then if you talk about an online degree show and you talk about fixed uh you know about the fixed position of a work and it being held within this rectangle really it becomes window shopping yeah and, but let's talk more on that what turns you off the most about a virtual show like what is you know what are all your negative points on that front i think the point that was brought up by a student that really run they're offering an online degree show but we've already got that and it's called the internet we have instagram yeah already and that is a and the school has an rca painting instagram which already is a online feed of this information and the whole point about you know the work itself art is a non-vicarious experience you you have to be there to see it yeah of course we see lots of things online because uh part of painting's new vitality is is instagram and social media where people previously were in studios not being seen but now everybody can create their own space yeah. online it shouldn't be limited to that and mm. the whole process of having the show and being able to see the work and people say oh it looks looks completely different in real life it's like no shit it's <laughs> it's you know of course it does it's it i just i think the school's duty would be to postpone and 
do this at a time that's safe for the community. Do you see any positives in a um, a virtual show? Like there, I've seen in articles somewhere that there's there is the fact that it, it can reach a much bigger audience. In theory, I mean, whether people would actually get round to logging on, you know, another question. But in theory, anyone from around the world can uh, can take that virtual tour. They don't need to be in London. It's always going to be archived and it's always going to be viewed online anyway. They, they was always going to have the chance. And it's it's just not an experience you can swap. If you yeah. talk about catharsis and that experience you have when you're in front of a painting or sculpture and you have this sense when you're you know just faced with it and you have a moment and you, you walk around... And, you know, this this one painting that really stands out from the other due to your own personal taste and you, and you return to that. If you look at people when they walk around museums and galleries these days, some people don't even really look at the work, but they're taking photos of the work. Yeah. And they choose that one, photo, that one painting in front of them, they home in on that and they go, mm. yeah, do you know what? And they Instagram that painting because they think it reflects their taste. And they see that painting and go, do you know what? I think this painting is an extension of what I like. And, I, you know, I'm this is what I'm into. And when you're just online looking at painting, it's no different to Instagram. We already have this. We're, mm. you know, Instagram's completely swamped yeah. with people's oh. taste and coolness. And, you know, there's already a hierarchy in place in social media of what's cool and what's not. And we don't need an online show to tell us what's cool, what's not. Yeah. People need to go see the art with their own eyes and experience it in the flesh. Have you been quite shocked that this is a route they would want to go down? No, no, no. I, I think they have to provide that service because there are some international students that couldn't do a show in the future. But when we did the poll, we did an online student survey and uh, 50% of the students answered, so about 1,250. And uh, I'm, I'm not going to quote figures because I don't want to get it wrong, but, but it was uh, 70 to 80% of people, international or not, were in favour of postponing. Mm. And that's quite a high mark. Our head of painting said she couldn't support the boycotting of a digital show because she'd be letting down for the minority. And which of course she can't because that's Alessandra Smith. She can't let down one minority to support a majority. Her job is to be there for everybody. So we did ask for her support on that, but of course she explained and we have to support that too because she can't let those down because if you did come from this place so far away and you struggled to get into this school too, and, you know, you have a background story like, like many where, you know, you had to have real sacrifice to get into that degree. And the idea of having your show in September doesn't work for you, then, you know, you have to be supported too. So I think both shows probably could have to happen. But then again, me speaking about this now would be had to uh, be speaking about the majority. I mean, sorry, all students. And of course, I can't do that. I can only speak about my experience as a student within what's happening, yeah. uh, which is just one person's angle honestly when the police came outside uh, it made me fucking nervous yeah. I mean, that's a lot that's quite heavy handed eight of them they banned on my window and I was naked because I was in bed yeah uh, I don't know what was. stupidly my initial thought was hey I should Instagram them uh, <laughs> I ate police in my yard but I realised as soon as I turned my phone on there's a light and they might break my windows like I, I basically I just didn't know what was going on I, I was a bit sleepy I, you know I was like half asleep and I was like fuck eight police in my yard and all you can see I've got no curtains and we're talking my bed if you look behind me because yeah. you're like that's my bed and the window is behind the computer mm. And there's like three meters between me and these windows with no curtains, and there's <laughs> men with torches, yeah, so and you there, so cameras on their chest, shouting, "We've, you know, we've got him!" And I just thought, "Oh no!" The police had got you. And the thing is, no, you know my history. Then you know that you know I used to be a graffiti writer, and the police raiding your house could be a thing and also the last time I had police in my house is when I found my best friend dead and so it also brought back this flashback where it was like okay so there's police 
all in my house and they're banning on my window uh can we like can we come for your house and i i, I just i played dead myself i was like i i don't want to talk to the police because they have this guy and uh i you know i i don't want nine men coming mm-hmm. through so you were there sort of naked phone in hand saying no you're not coming in no, well, I, I, I just played dead because i heard what they said to him and they said uh what are you doing he said i'm homeless and they said why are you sweating a homeless man doesn't sweat when he sleeps then they found his car keys and said where's your car and it, it gave me flashbacks to me getting chased by the police police mm. But also what happened with my friend in my flat and I and it, it was a it really threw me out of my comfort zone I was like in bed and then all of a sudden I was having flashbacks to my own interaction with the police yeah it was, it was a very uncomfortable place so I nearly I nearly cancelled talking to you guys today because it yeah it made me feel uncomfortable it brought back many mm-hmm. memories you know of uh, of the past does it look like the college will possibly change on their current stance or is it is it fixed? uh i'm a bit of a doom and gloom uh, reality person where i always think the worst and i think they they won't budge i'd be bloody surprised but the thing is if you got people like peter doig mark lecky jeremy Della, david lammy mp uh, wrote to them you have eight thousand people on the petition yeah uh you know, Chancel Joffe, just all these different people who have an opinion that should have some weight within the complexities of an art school and yeah. the business, influential people. If you have these voices and they're not being listened to, you'd think. And I think one of the things, Mark Lecky, when when I reached out to him, he's so down to earth. He, he just said, like, here's my number, call me. And so I, I called him up and... Uh, I've, I've listened to him in an artist talk before and I really warmed to him because uh, somebody asked him a question that's pre-rehearsed and was it was so art school, the question. And uh, I can't remember what it was, but uh, Eric Hugh was there. Yeah. And, uh, his answer was, sorry, mate, I, I don't know what you're saying. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah mate. I don't know what you're saying. Is that it, it was, somebody was just trying to be too, too cool with the question. He's really down to earth and he said, look, I can't believe they're going to go ahead with this because an art school, all it has is its reputation. And as I believe, unless I've been wrong informed, the Royal Academy have postponed their show. Now, I know the Royal Academy show is only a 17-person show, which is different to a 1,500-person show. But a school which is uh, meant to be prided on its innovation, I think, can handle uh, innovating a, a show at a later date. I yes. think we have enough intelligence within the hierarchy to accommodate them. Because everybody has to accommodate. Yeah. You know, every, everybody's uh, en route. Ivan uh, Harari, who wrote Sapiens, he was on Channel 4 News, and he, he was talking about society, how it's going to change after this. And he said, already uh, there's been changes that have been implemented in two weeks that have been 20 years of planning. And he said his own university... They've been talking about going online for 20 years and in the space of two weeks, they've, they've done it. Yeah. And the problem right here is one of the reasons why I was so vocal about it was it, it's not so much fighting for the degree show for the second years. It's fighting for the future of art schools in general, because already there's private discussions happening with tutors and myself, not from art school, but I speak to people from Camberwell and people who are part of the UAL about how they want to turn the whole degree more online. Like the interview process at the RCA now is no longer an interview. You do it online. So already you're losing the human touch. The whole process of turning up with a van full of artwork and sweating and and fluffing your lines and completely making a fool of yourself has been replaced by this online uh, interview and uh, I think when you start removing the human touch you enter this post-human reality where no longer uh, is an art school uh, two humans talking about the work and what you're doing with it and you know what's your intentions and where's it going and you remove the tutors and you know then tutorials in the future can remain online the show itself, which is the biggest cost in the degree show with the insurance and all of the build and the space that's taken up. When you take this into the digital realm, then you're just streamlining a degree 
and already this talk of it going 16 months from 20 from two years to 16 months and it becomes more of a revolving door and uh you just see that we could have uh, gone through the golden period of art schools and we're about to enter this modern streamlined digital service where it's like okay you want you want a piece of paper here you go in you go uh, bam and out you go and you're an artist and uh i, I don't think uh, 16 months is enough time to have a nervous breakdown have a breakup uh, have a drug addiction uh, smash up your studio uh cry uh, you know, have a crit where you can't believe how much you've been insulted and then pull it all back together. And then you have your degree show, but you can't remember because you, you had the party of your life. You know, it's, it can't be replaced. So that's the end of another one. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. You can get in touch with us by emailing us at artproofpodcast at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can get in touch with us through Instagram at artproofpodcast. We'll have more shows coming up during the lockdown period, and we hope you all stay safe and sound.